Our Untangled Minds is for informational purposes only, and it does not constitute professional, medical, or psychological advice, diagnoses, and or treatment. Please make sure that if you do have questions or concerns that are medical or psychological in nature, that you seek out your physician or qualified mental health provider for future help. Furthermore, the information, viewpoints, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the views of individuals that are involved. They do not represent absolute fact and are subject to change at any point in time. CUSM does not accept responsibility for these views. Lastly, the names and details of any medical stories shared in this episode have been edited for privacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Our Untangled Minds, CUSM's student-run podcast. Today, we have an excellent guest, a real treat for you all. I am overjoyed to welcome on Dr. Adonis Vera, a professor of behavioral health at Loma Linda University, a forensic psychiatrist par excellence, and one of the leading researchers into a rather surprising potential cause of schizophrenia, microbial infection. Today we will be discussing Dr. Svera's research, his work on the alternate cause of schizophrenia, and how they play into our growing understanding of the biopsychosocial model of illness and the gut-brain axis. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Svera. Thank you for having me. Glad to see you. Yes. First things first, could you please tell us a little bit more about your journey towards psychiatry and schizophrenia research in particular? Uh, yes, I uh, I started being interested in uh, in, in schizophrenia uh, during during my medical school rotation in psychiatry. Uh, I did my medical school in Romania, and uh, interestingly, there the psychiatric hospital uh, they were uh, also having uh, dissidents, people who did not agree with the with the regime. Uh, they were mixed with, with patients with schizophrenia, uh, which made an, an interesting mixture. So I started getting interest in, in psychiatry in general and then in, in schizophrenia, in spe- uh, especially in schizophrenia. When I came to the United States in 1984, I uh, ended up doing my residence in psychiatry at the University of uh, uh, Southern California at USC and uh, participated in, in many uh, clinical trials there, mostly of schizophrenia, but also um, neurodegenerative disorder. You also did some work and had a lot of experience dealing with the early HIV, with the HIV epidemic at USC, if I remember correctly. Could you discuss okay. how that went? Correct, yeah. Yeah, this was, this was back in the, in the 90s when uh, HIV was not treatable. It was it was mostly a um, death sentence at that time. Uh, we we saw the phases of HIV and HIV dementia, which we don't see anymore uh, today. Uh, we saw that that HIV became uh, um, people with HIV developed uh, psychosis very early. There was new onset schizophrenia. Uh, at that time, which uh, made me interested in uh, microbial or the pathogen hypothesis of schizophrenia. Thank you so much, Dr. Svara. As well, how did you get involved in the nitty-gritty and the biochemistry of understanding this potential immunological cause of mental illness? 
Right. I was always interested in chemistry. I always said that there's no modern medicine without without biochemistry. Um, and uh, and and then looking at the hypothesis of schizophrenia that we have today, which is the dopamine hypothesis, uh, brings you to the field of chemistry, physiology, biology, and uh, and and very soon you find out that they are both intertwined in the field of schizophrenia. And uh, lately, we also need to add immunology to that list. True. As well, I mean, you were personally involved in a lot of the new discoveries of medic discovers a medication. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, before working at Porto State, I had an office in uh, in Anaheim working with uh, a clinical trials with various medications, uh, mostly antipsychotic, but also some of the medications for neurodegenerative diseases. For example, in this in this way, I could get acquainted with these medications before they even came on the market. For example, uh, uh, Seroquel, it was, it was a big study, one of my first ones that lasted about four years or so. And uh, we, we got to use Seroquel and see how, how it works for schizophrenia before it came on the market. Thank you so much. You know, just to give a brief description for our viewers, schizophrenia is a disorder, chronic illness, characterized by the combination of positive or active symptoms like delusions, hallucinations, and psychosis, which are the most common associations with that disease, and negative symptoms like apathy, cognitive decline, difficulty selecting words. Typically, schizophrenia emerges after a prodromal period in early adulthood, but it can emerge later. Studies have shown that it has a genetic component but while early, the earliest twin studies show it had it around 80% heritability, more recent research has shown a much lower amount, even down to 30%. Dr. Sparrow, is that about right? Uh, yes, that, that's correct. Initially, when, when people were looking at genetic studies uh, in twins, in identical twins, um, they, they uh, obtained a higher uh, correlation number, uh, but, but they did not look at the whether these twins live together or live in different environments. So when you put the environment or, or the, the, the epigenetic factors into the equation, then, then, then you get a much lower convergence uh, between the identical twins. Thank you so much. As well, could you describe a bit of the etiology and the early studies around how and why schizophrenia comes to pass? Right. Well, the first the first uh, studies of like like if you if you go uh, back to Kaplan, who um, uh, of course called schizophrenia dementia precox, because he he believed that uh, schizophrenia is a form of dementia which progresses very rapidly uh, to to a dementia phase, but which which now we know is the the, the stable phase or the fourth phase of schizophrenia in which patients have mostly negative symptoms, allergia, abolition, poverty of speech and thought, and, 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 and so forth. Uh, however, after, after uh, Kaplan, the uh, field of psychiatry took, took a, a turn, 
and with Bloiler and Swiss psychiatrists um, turned more toward, toward psychology and uh, how psychological factors can uh, intervene and cause psychosis. So, so that was going on for, for, for a long time because uh, after Floyder came Jung and so and, and others, and uh, it lasted all the way up until 1953 when the first antipsychotic was discovered, which is uh, chlorpromazine. Describe how chlorpromazine was discovered and you know about how it works. Yes, chlorpromazine uh, is the uh, people were not looking for an antipsychotic at that time. They were looking for an anti-allergic medication for something for allergies. Of, of course, uh, they started to notice that people with depression, people with anxiety, people with uh, uh, schizophrenia got somewhat better, and then psychiatrists got interested in in um, chlorpromazine. And and then and then it was uh, it was utilized the first time in France in one particular individual who who uh, improved very quickly and uh, was uh, discharged from the hospital in a, in a matter of weeks. Uh, so that, of course, got published and, uh, and uh, it started the, the era of uh, psychopharmacology as we know it today. So how does chlorpromazine work and what sort of theories of schizophrenia were built around it? Right. Initially, the, the, it, it was unknown. Uh, later on, uh, they came with the idea of uh, of the dopamine hypothesis because it was it was believed that blocking the postsynaptic dopaminergic receptors is something that improves schizophrenia, that improves the symptomatology. Now, now, chlorpromazine doesn't do only that. It, it's it's something that we call a dirty drug because it affects many other receptors. Uh, you know, such as such as histamine and and, uh, and uh, uh, noradrenergic uh, receptors and, and, and so forth. So so um, we are still operating today on the basis of the dopamine hypothesis. However, we have been doing that for the past seventy years. Put on the market approximately uh, forty uh, antipsychotic medications. But when you look back, when you when you step out of the um, the picture and, and and look back, we did not improve the outcome. We improved the symptoms for the moment. Uh, we have like partial resolution or resolution of the symptoms. But but if you look at the at the uh, uh, sustained recovery, you don't have that. Uh, new studies show that. Only about 13.5% of patients uh, attain um, sustained recovery, meaning being able to get to the premorbid phase. Um, and this is what our patients with schizophrenia want. They don't want to just be free of uh, a symptom. In fact, some of them uh, say that, that uh, uh, hallucinations don't bother them too much. What they would like to do is they would they would like to raise a family, they would like to work, go back to school, and all those things that, that you and I uh, are, are capable of doing. And, and with this medication that we have now, we cannot promise the patient that they will improve to that level. Uh, in fact, 
In fact, a hundred years ago, there were large psychiatric, uh, there were large public institutions for uh, tuberculosis, leprosy, and uh, mental illness. And today, we only have um, state hospitals for uh, psychiatric illness because we did not make that much progress uh, like infectious diseases, which with the discovery of the antibiotics, you know, they, there's no need for state hospitals for tuberculosis or leprosy anymore. But we still have state hospitals for, for schizophrenia. True, indeed. Are there any other major areas of schizophrenia that we can, that, you know, we can and are considering targeting? Yeah, that, that, that's several, uh, but the dopamine hypothesis is, is the predominant one. Um, people were looking at, at the environment, uh, people were looking at the uh, allergic uh, hypothesis, they were looking at, uh, at various toxins and so forth, but, but the, the reality is that, that uh, back in the 50s and 60s, we knew what we knew about schizophrenia was actually congruent with the dopamine hypothesis. But the more we learned about schizophrenia, we now know that that's, that are um, manifestations of this disease that are difficult to explain by dopamine alone. For example, we know that that uh, uh, air pollution can trigger schizophrenia. We know that that, for example. There's higher prevalence of schizophrenia in the northern regions where there is less sunshine and uh, um, colder. Uh, we know that there are uh, autoantibodies in schizophrenia which, which, which cannot be explained by the dopamine hypothesis, but it can be explained by other things. For example, uh, uh, we've been studying the uh, translocation of microbes. Uh, from the GI tract into the systemic circulation. And how we learned about that was back, back with, with the HIV in the 90s, because HIV is a condition that, that is uh, marked by, by huge translocation of microbes from the GI tract, because this virus alters the permeability of the GI tract. And, uh, and, and, and there were, of course, uh, cases of nuanced schizophrenia at that time. And then we have we have COVID we have COVID right now, which also alters the permeability of uh, the GI tract, the GI uh, barrier, and uh, we have cases of uh, new onset schizophrenia with with COVID. So that makes you think that there may be other things uh, going on than just blockade or postsynaptic dopamine receptors. True. The question with these sorts of systemic issues with microbes and systemic circulation and viral infiltration. How do these sorts of particles cross the blood-brain barrier and how do they and how would they affect the parts of the brain responsible for you know, schizophrenia which range from the prefrontal cortex, you know, the amygdala and beyond? Right. So, so biological barriers in general are affected because the viruses affect the molecules which keep the biological barriers together. Um, the, uh, um, the molecules that that 
comprise the alchemical velcro that, that holds the cells together. Uh, viruses can, can cross either through the cell or they can disrupt this uh, tight junction which holds the cells together. And, and, and that happens in the, in the blood-brain barrier also. Uh, and how we know that is because in, in Alzheimer's disease, there are several studies that show uh, microbes and lipopolysaccharides in the brain. And uh, there's no other possibility how the lipopolysaccharides from the drug microbes could get into the brain. And then also they found various other uh, microorganisms in the brain, like fungi and, uh, and, and microbes. So now we know for sure that that the gut microbes of their, their molecules can reach the brain. Wow. Well, that is that's very interesting, Al. You actually did a little bit of discussion earlier on how, you know, the microbes could also produce neurotransmitters and on how some of our antipsychotics might work on that angle. Could you discuss how that one would work? Right. So the microbes, the, the, micro, the gut microbes uh, produce every single uh, transmitter that, that we have, you know. We know now that, that the GI tract microorganisms produce dopamine, serotonin, melatonin, uh, norepinephrine, uh, and these are the, the, the uh, neurotransmitters that, that we know to function, to, to uh, be part of, or to be of interest of, to psychiatry. Uh, also, the fact that we, we have discovered autoantibodies, for example, in the um, blood of uh, a patient and NCSF of the patients with schizophrenia. That doesn't mean that schizophrenia is, a, is an autoimmune disorder. It simply means that that the, the microbes which cross because of post-circulation stimulated the immune system to produce antibodies against the microbial receptors which then cross-react with with the receptors in the brain. So the anti-glutamate receptors, that, uh, anti-glutamate uh, antibodies that were discovered in schizophrenia may simply prove the fact that, that uh, they, there's microbial translocation because the body responds to the uh, glutamate receptors in that microbes. Thank you so much as well. Yeah. With this, you know, there's been a lot of research into the blood-brain barrier and the gut-brain axis recently, especially in the domain of autism. A lot of studies have shown that both autism and schizophrenia very commonly co-occur with inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome, which are autoimmune gastrointestinal disorders. What, would you, what do you think are the you know, modes and causes behind those? and? How do those play into our new understanding? Uh, yes, inflammatory bowel disease are comorbid with schizophrenia, autism, uh, schizoaffective disorder, and so forth. And yes, they are autoimmune uh, uh, diseases, but they are also implicated in uh, disruption of the gut uh, barrier and blood-brain barrier. So there is there is translocation of uh, microbes in, uh, for example, Crohn's disease. 
many cell types of the human body, including the neuron. Now, what do you know about the idea of schizophrenia as being a birth defect caused by issues during pregnancy? There have been a lot of studies ranging for decades on that topic, with like maternal infection and such. Could you give us some more information, some more detail on that? Yes, there was a, a, a now schizophrenia is considered a neurodevelopmental disorder. So in other words, it starts in utero, but the symptoms only come later in life. Uh, and uh, a new onset schizophrenia was found after period viral infections, for example, um, rubella um, back in the 60s. Uh, there were studies done with uh, women who were pregnant during the rubella epidemic, and uh, uh, about 50 to 60 percent of, of the offspring of this uh, uh, individual, they were diagnosed with schizophrenia later on in life. And then I, I mentioned also, also herpes virus 6 uh, has been associated with with schizophrenia in offspring. We don't know about COVID yet, but, but HIV during pregnancy was associated with schizophrenia in, uh, in offspring. Wow. And just to complicate things further, in accordance with, our, with the new tendency in medicine to see everything as an interplay between the biological, the psychological, and the social, there were also some studies that recently came out showing that immigrants from southern regions to more northern industrialized regions, in this case from the Caribbean to the U.S., tended to develop more schizophrenia, but only those who, ha but only those who were more visibly you know, members of a minority, as opposed to those who could blend in more close to the majority population. What would you say is behind that, Dr. Svera? Uh, yes, yeah, that's, that is true. Uh, immigrants in general are more prone to, uh, for example, delusional disorder is something that, that's common in uh, immigrants. Uh, also, schizophrenia, like you mentioned, people who came from the uh, southern region and uh, um, moved into, into the, the north, uh, which, which kind of relates to the fact that that schizophrenia is more prevalent in the northern region anyway, and uh, that's where, where the, uh, the exposure to sunlight comes, uh, and the connection between between uh, vitamin D and schizophrenia. And in fact, there is a uh, vitamin D hypothesis of schizophrenia. It was described a few years ago. Uh, so we know now that uh, it has to do with with um, exposure to sunlight, and uh, because uh, and, and this is where the the uh, um, aryl hydrocarbon receptor comes in. This is a receptor that that um, is present in the cytosol or the cytoplasm of the um, cells and neurons as well, and uh, uh, it's activated various uh, uh, exogenous and endogenous stimuli. And uh, vitamin D, D3 is, uh, is a ligand at uh, uh, AHR or aryl hydrocarbon receptor. And so it's clozapine, interestingly, and, uh, uh, and, and microbial molecules. Uh, so so this, this brings this receptor into the, the arena of uh, 
psychiatry. Well, as well, you know, there's actually was some discussion on social isolation as a cause, you know, especially with regards to certain bits of research around blue zones, which are known for having very good physical and mental health, as opposed to areas with significantly worse mental health. Could you describe some of that research? Or? Right. There were there's, there's blue zone areas, and uh, and one of them is here in Loma Linda. There's, there's five of them in the world. So, so when they study the, the blue zones, uh, longevity and pathology, that is less prevalent in people who live in blue zones, and for several reasons, you know, it's it's the uh, it's it's the food, it's the uh, socializing. Uh, in fact, when they did this uh, study in uh, um, in Italy, they found that that socializing was actually a very important um, component of uh, avoiding neurodegeneration or or disorders such as Alzheimer's disease. Fascinating, and as well, yeah. On the contrary, isolation can cause very real physical consequences. Yeah. which can even be a cause of mental disorder through certain inflammatory pathways, as you actually discussed in some of your research. Yes, yes. actually we, we, we saw that uh, during the COVID uh, pandemic, when people were isolated uh, from each other, um, they, uh, they could not, even when they were in the hospital, they could not be visited by, by families and so forth. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, there, there, are, uh, there were cases of, uh, of PTSD, there were cases of uh, new onset schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder. Um, so, so we know now that, that isolation uh, can contribute to, to uh, mental As well. Having seen all these things, you know, from the gut-brain axis to the immune system to stress, are there any new pathways these ideas can provide us into understanding and hopefully eventually treating these severe conditions? Right. There are pathways. Uh, for example, the areohydrocarbon receptor is one. There's uh, also the uh, uh, gut-brain barrier via uh, enteric nervous system and the vagus nerve uh, and vagal nerve stimulation was uh, also uh, found to be uh, helpful in uh, uh, many conditions. But we are uh, here, in myself and, and, and the team, we are focusing mostly on the, the uh, aryl hydrocarbon receptor because it's a protein which is found at the, at the biological barrier, uh, gut barrier, blood-brain barrier and so forth, and, and uh, various ligands, uh, endogenous and exogenous, uh, bind to uh, aryl hydrocarbon receptor. And when this receptor is, uh, is activated, there are various uh, inflammatory conditions that can um, follow after the activation of this receptor. So, so right now there is uh, uh, aryl hydrocarbon receptor and antagonists are developed and uh, this is like a like a major major thing in in uh, um, the pharmaceutical industry today um, 
to, to develop um, new molecules uh, that, that, that can inhibit AHR. And uh, again, AHR is, is uh, stimulated by uh, um, gut microbes, by the metabolites of uh, um, uh, tryptophan from the gut, um, by ultraviolet radiation, um, various medications such as clozapine and carbidopa. So these medications, of course, on dopamine, they, they, they are also, um, they activate uh, AHR. So, so it's becoming a very important um, molecule, something that, that we'll be doing more and more in psychiatry in the future. Thank you so much for your fascinating insights, Dr. Sarah. Now on to a little bit slowly shuffling towards our conclusions. I'd like to ask you some more general advice for Mac students. You know, when dealing with complicated lifelong conditions like schizophrenia, what sort of factors should a physician in training keep in mind and focus on in order to better understand and eventually treat our patients? Well, a lot of medical, well, first of all, we need to know that, that uh, that uh, a lot of medical conditions uh, can cause schizophrenia, uh, of course, psychosis and uh, uh, intoxication. Uh, we we also have uh, uh, various uh, uh, molecules produced by uh, microbes and, and viruses that can uh, affect the AHR receptor and uh, eventually lead to. So, so there, there are medical conditions, there are medications that can, can trigger uh, schizophrenia, um, intoxications, and so forth. Of course, drugs. As well, you know, what's your, you know, has this shifted your attitude or taught you anything about the relationship between the body and the mind, and how healthcare professionals should consider that sort of relation? Right. So, so what we are dividing the body in, in various uh, compartments, uh, uh, including in, including the brain, uh, the body is one. So there is no um, didactically we, we we divide the body into um, you know the, the chest cavity, the the uh, brain, but in reality all the organs work together. So so the brain response to, to insults in different ways. And the insults can be can be peripheral, like peripheral inflammation, uh, uh, can be uh, central inflammation, neuroinflammation. So those are all insults, and the brain responds to insults in different ways. It can respond by, by headaches, you know, migraine headaches. It can respond by dizziness and vertigo. By the way, vertigo is, is a hallucination. Right, it's a hallucination of motion. So, so there's many ways in which the brain, the brain uh, responds to, to, to um, uh, insults from from outside of the body and from inside of the body. Thank you so much, Dr. Svetlana. Just a few more questions. Do you have a favorite figure from the early history of psychiatry? You've done a lot of studying on this topic. Yes, I do. Um, actually. I'll, uh, I have two favorite uh, uh, 
personality from early psychiatry, but I'd like to talk about Trepelin because we mentioned him in this in this uh, interview. Uh, Trepelin believed uh, uh, that uh, schizophrenia is caused by various toxins or uh, bacteria that um, reach the brain from different other parts of the body. So in a way, he was uh, hinting at the microbiome, like we are we are talking now, and and that's. Uh, that part of Trepelin's work was completely ignored later on. True. All right. Thanks so much. Now for a slightly more frivolous question, a few slightly more frivolous round of questions. Do you have a favorite work of art depicting psychiatry or the patients that you treat? Uh, yes, actually, I met a patient when I was in private practice with Alzheimer's disease, and uh, he was a talented. Uh, he was he was a painter uh, and a sculptor, and uh, he uh, talked about how how uh, the disease affected his creativity and, and uh, um, the ability to to, to paint and to to, to carve in stone. Thanks so much, as well. Do you got a favorite, you know, travel or vacation story or spot? Uh, yes, I like um, I like to travel to Italy. Uh, Italy and Switzerland are my favorite uh, parts. Um, of course, um, early in, earlier in my life, I was uh, um, a Jungian, uh, and uh, Jung was from Switzerland, from from Vienna. Uh, I uh, I participated early in the in the 1980s uh, on a documentary on Jung's life. It's called A Matter of Heart. And then visited Burkholzi Hospital where Jung worked, as well as his house, which which uh, it's now owned by the family, but there is a Jung Institute right next to his house. And uh, my first job in the United States was working for Jung Institute in Los Angeles. Wow. As well. If we can get away with it, I hope we can. Do you have a favorite psychiatry-related joke? <laughs> well, let's see. Let's see. Uh, uh, well, how can how can a psychiatrist change a uh, light bulb? I'm not asking how many psychiatrists you need, but how can a psychiatrist? How how does a psychiatrist? How? Well, he puts he puts the the light bulb in the in the socket and does nothing because the earth rotation will help uh, tighten the, 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 the light bulb. Hold the bulb and let the world spin around you. That works. Yeah. yeah. If you could give one piece of advice to a medical student just starting out with an interest in your field, what would it be? Uh, yeah, I have many. I work with students who rotate here from Loma Linda and from, from, from UC Riverside, and many of them are interested in in psychiatry, so so what I what I tell them usually is is learn to think for yourself, like question everything. Do not just accept because a professor says or, or I say or do do your own study, do your own um, research in order to to find answers. Because many many people would just take for granted everything else, and and that that um, that impairs creativity and and. and it's, it's no good for life in general. As distinct from that, 
If you could advise a younger version of yourself in particular, what advice would you give? I think uh, like, like when I was uh, um, younger, I was interested in, in, uh, in the psychological aspect. Uh, like I mentioned Jung, you know, uh, Jung was fascinated for me, fascinating for me because, because it goes into, into archetypes and, and, and things from, from the past and tries to connect them to, to, to the mind. Um, but, but later on, I uh, kind of realized, well, yeah, that's, that's all interesting and it's challenging for the mind, but doesn't help me help the patient too much. Do you have any other things you'd like to say? Any last words? I'd like to thank you for doing this. Uh, I, I think, I think uh, whatever I can do to help um, young doctors and people who are on their way to become doctors is it, it, it's something that, that I like to do. I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher, so I like to, to, to teach. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Svetta, and I really appreciate you, you know, joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or episode suggestions, please email us at oumpodcast at cusm.org. That's O-U-M-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-U-S-M dot org. Thanks.